Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of Always Ready, the program dedicated to encouraging the church to discern truth from lie, right from wrong, and right from mostly right, and ultimately, how to look at the world around us through the lens of Scripture. There are a lot of truth claims being made every day, but only one truth remains, and that is found in God's Holy Word. My name is David Lohman, my friends call me Dilo, and I am your host and fellow pilgrim in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for joining me today for Always Ready. I want you to be informed. I want you to be entertained. But most importantly, I want you to be always ready. Today is Thursday, April 10th, 2014, and welcome to Edition 2, Volume 36 of Always Ready. The best way to reach me is at DLO Always Ready. That is on Twitter, at DLO Always Ready. And uh, today we are going to get right to it as we're going to be continuing our discussion on church history, and we're going to be finishing this week's discussion with my all-time favorite person outside of Jesus Christ, and that is we're going to take a look at the life of the uh, reformer, of the Swiss and French reformer, John Calvin. So we're going to get right to it with a look or a walk through the Always Ready University. Welcome. Once again, to Always Ready University, a chance where we take some time to set aside to discuss things of a historical nature, a theological nature, and a doctrinal nature. And in doing so, we've brought together the very best of the best of people that know more about this than I could ever dream of knowing. They know the stuff that I read off the computer screen just by out of their mind. So... When it comes to this stuff, my goal is to bring the very best, and I think that's what we did so far this week. We have brought in the best uh, historians as we took a look at the early church on Monday and Tuesday. We lo- on Monday, I believe, we looked at um, the early church fathers, the patristic fathers, and on Tuesday, we took a look at the Middle Ages. Yesterday, we took a li- uh, look at the life of Martin Luther, and today I'm being joined by Dr. David Hall, and we're going to be discussing the life of John Calvin. How are you doing today, sir? Fine. Thank you for having me on. It's a treat. Uh, thank you for joining me. You are in Atlanta. Can you just give us a little bit of background information about yourself, school, church, all that other sort of stuff? I do know that you uh, you actually are the pastor of a church of one of the, uh, my most popular guests, um, Gary <laughs> DeMar. And it was kind of funny because I said, I think that church sounds familiar. I think I've heard it mentioned a couple times on the air. And then I, I, I realized that's where Gary goes. And we've had Gary on the air now three times, and he still holds the record for the most downloaded episode of Always Ready. Good. He's a, he and Carol are great folks. <laughs> they, yeah, he is Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor here in the uh, northwest uh, Atlanta metro area. been here. I'm in my 12th year. And prior to that, was a pastor for 20 years in East Tennessee, and uh, I've done some editing and writing of books, mainly on Calvin and uh, on government. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And, and John Calvin is our, our focus. Um, you've actually written on Calvin. Give me a couple of uh, different books so that people can maybe track down some information that they can... Uh, uh, obviously, we're only going to scratch the surface on the life and ministry of Calvin. Um, let's let's uh, give them some information, some things that they can they can sure. purchase to get some more information. Sure. There's a, there's a series that uh, Presbyterian Reform published in 2008 through 2012 uh, called the Calvin 500 series that commemorated the 500... Uh, your anniversary of Calvin's birth. A short little book on that is called The Legacy of John Calvin. Uh, it's very short and expensive. You can get all these at Amazon. And uh, Calvin in the Public Square is my book on Calvin's political thought uh, that pulls together a number of essays. And I tell you, there's a great resource that has just come out. It's not a book, but it's a 10-part video series entitled The Protestant Revolt, 
and uh, Pete Lilback uh, and I put together a, a videography crew in 2009 to uh, follow our tour. And I just can't say enough about this uh, video series. And your your listeners can get it free. There's a website. It's uh, theprotestantrevolt.com. Uh, no punctuation. Theprotestantrevolt.com is a 10-part video series uh, that takes people to to European sites from Spain to Rome, uh, Geneva, Basel, London, and then back to uh, the American shores to see the influence of Calvin and the Protestant Reformation. And that's amazing. That is free. They just go yep. straight to that website and they can watch those videos there. Yeah, it's great. It's a great resource for church libraries, for education, for homeschools, for TVs programs, a lot of things. Well, perfect. The, the, I, I have a the videography is just great. I, I can't say enough. Pete does, Pete Lilbeck does most of the narration, and uh, it's, it's sort of an all-star uh, core of commentators. Well, you brought up homeschoolers, and I'm actually sitting uh, right across the table from a homeschooler who uh, I cannot convince to uh, open up his microphone and ask you a question. So uh, maybe he'll write them down and give them to me. It's my 11-year-old son, whose middle name is Calvin. And uh, that is, yeah, I know. And that is why I've brought him um, into the studio today for the first time to watch the show. I've been begging him all day to ask a question, but uh, he just refuses to. He does not have his dad's obnoxious personality. Um, I want to let you know what we've been doing this week is talking about the history of the Reformation leading up to Luther and Calvin. And then next week, um, I'm already getting people jealous. I have have other talk show hosts that are jealous about my week next week. We're going to talk about... um, the Reformation's impact on the church today. And my guests next week are Michael Horton, Stephen J. Lawson, John Barber, and Joel Beek. Um, yeah. Suffice it to say, that's a pretty uh, <laughs> uh, uh, top-of-the-line uh, group of people to talk about the impact. But I think to really, before we can talk about the impact, we kind of have to get a picture of the history of the Reformation. And, and to start with, I want to talk about what life was like um, when, when John Calvin was born. Because yesterday we were talking to uh, Daniel um, Van Voorhis of, of Concordia about Luther. And Luther kind of came into a different structure. He was under this monarchical system. The, he was um, very attached to uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. Um, Germany was a, was a different world than France. But at the same time, and it was 30 to 40 years earlier... But it was not a great time in the church's history when it comes to um, what was going on with the popes and such at the time. Okay, David, let me let me try to get a question out of your son. Okay, but, and I'm going to ask him. I, I'm going to ask him. He's listening. Okay, I'm going to ask him three questions. He can nod his head. Okay. Yeah, first he's going to. He'll his, only nod his head. Trust me. All right, what's his first name? Uh, his first name is Caden. Okay, Caden. Do you have a Facebook page? Yes, he does have a Facebook page. Do you have a Twitter account? No, he does not. Okay. Do you use the internet daily? He's on the internet a lot. Okay, those three questions tell me something that, that most eleven-year-olds would uh, affirm. Most eleven-year-olds would have those kind of accesses. Twenty years ago, no eleven-year-old had that. Uh, my kids have grown up on the internet, uh, using computers, uh, and and it's unimaginable to most people uh, of a certain age of what the world was like before, say, 1994, which is when the Internet really became popular. The Reformation had a similar impact. There's such a clear before and after demarcation of the Reformation, and people simply uh, have come to become very accustomed with certain things today. For example, we, we most of us in the West take democracy for granted. Uh, you simply didn't have people voting 500 years ago. There were, there were, there were just a handful of city-states 
where citizens could ever vote on anything. Uh, so that's a big sea change in our world. And Calvin and his disciples were right on the cutting edge of that. Indeed, uh, Calvin's disciples, following from his teaching, uh, brought the liberties and the freedoms uh, that most of us enjoy. We take yeah. those things for granted. Could we ask sure. that like an SAT question, that the Internet is to today as the printing press was to... Because the Reformation really did take it. We know for sure in Luther's life, the printing press had a major impact right. on right. The, the growth and the expansion and the immediacy before it would take years and, and maybe even decades before thoughts sure. and ideas could be shared. But this was, but with Luther, it was nearly instantaneous, um, at least by those times' standards. But when we're looking at the decadence of it, I mean, I, I told the story yesterday that there was a pope who dug up the remains of his predecessor, wrapped him in regalia, uh, the pope regalia, and then like, put him on trial and cut off his, his fingers and threw them into the river. I mean, that's, that's crazy to even consider that today. Right. Well, go back to the printing press. Um, the, in Geneva, for example, when, when uh, Calvin arrived in 1536, there were three printers and 50 merchants. It was a small town, very few nobles. Uh, by the end of his life, there were 113 printers and publishers. Wow. And, and Astronomical, and the number of volumes printed. So not only did the Gutenberg Press accelerate uh, Lutheran ideas, but Calvinist as well. And even, even greater than the, I mean, both of these are technologies. You think about the change in the modern world with the Gutenberg Press and with the Internet. Uh, but ideas are actually exponential and more important than any technology. And the ideas that uh, Calvin and his disciples rediscovered, I think that's important, an important point to note for your audience, is that Calvin, Calvin did not view himself uh, as an innovator. The term reformer is actually pretty accurate. He was going back to, and Calvin saw himself having much more in common with the early church and the patristics than he did uh, the Renaissance. So his, his calling, his goal was to take uh, people, churches, communities back to the scriptures, uh, and that he did. Uh, and that's and that's a great place. We're going to go to a, a break real quick, and that's a great place to start because I want to take, kind of take a little picture back and how we get to where Calvin is in Geneva. So we're going to go to a break right now. My guest is Dr. David Hall. We are talking about the life and ministry of John Calvin right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready with my guest, David Hall. And my silent guest, Caden Lohman, who is sitting across the, the table from me. Now, getting back to our where we kind of left off was, was, was dealing with John Calvin and kind of the life that he was brought up and what was going on and, and the expansion of business and enterprise and everything that was going on. But before we get there, um, give us a little bit of background on Calvin, where he was born, what his parents were like, uh, what kind of life was he born into, and his schooling, because I don't think a lot of people realize just how young he was when he began writing the Institutes. Right. Calvin was uh, educated uh, in, primarily in Paris. Uh, his father was um, sort of a bureaucrat within the Roman Catholic Church, and his father was a strong presence and wanted him to uh, enter uh, several fields. Uh, he first wanted him to be a, a minister because he thought that was a good living. Uh, and then later his, his dad uh, moved him toward the legal profession. Calvin uh, went to the University of Paris and was educated with some of the greatest teachers of the day. Uh, again, university educations were not a dime a dozen. And following that, he was also educated south of Paris 
a couple hours at Orléans, uh, where he received the equivalent, a law degree. All of these uh, different educational uh, tracks served to help Calvin be useful later in life. He underwent a conversion uh, about 1534. Again, this is five centuries ago. He underwent a conversion. Uh, and uh, the only place that he talks about himself and his inner life, he was a pretty private person. You know, there's a flip side to that. He, he just wasn't a boastful person. He didn't try to uh, bring the limelight to himself. Uh, the only place where he records his own conversion is in his preface to the commentary on the Psalms. Uh, and he talks about his, his, his heart being changed and being delivered from idolatry. A few short years later, uh, he had began to uh, make a little reputation for himself. Uh, and he actually began writing and published the first in, uh, edition of the Institutes, which was a much shorter work, by the way, than it is now. It expanded over about a 25-year period. Didn't he continue to write it and expand it until almost yeah. his death? Yeah, his his first edition is probably 30% of what the corpus is now. Uh, but that was published from Basel in 1536. Uh, and um, he, he established a little bit of a reputation for himself uh, and uh, constantly lived for a period of about a year or two as a as a refugee. In fact, he had to adopt, uh, this is a fascinating story, to adopt a number of aliases. Uh, he had to use, he had to fake his identity in different places because uh, he could have been killed. Uh, and finally, as he's meandering through the Alps, uh, he, he arrives near Geneva and uh, about uh, 20 miles east of Geneva, um, the leader of the Genevan Protestants, Guillaume Farrell, or William Farrell, went and urged him to come and be their pastor and settle in there. Yeah, and I, it's, 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 there's no way to overstate uh, Farrell's influence and, and impact on, on Calvin's life. As I've read on, on Calvin, it seems like that name shows up over and over as someone that I mean, played a very significant role. Yeah, there were, th- there were actually three friends. Uh, they referred themselves as the tripod of the the Swiss uh, French Reformation, Pharrell, Calvin, and Peter Verret, who was in Lausanne, uh, another town to the east. And Pharrell wasn't a great scholar. He only uh, left behind one or two writings. He was actually a real fiery, um, just a just a mercurial uh, personality. Uh, and on occasion, for example, when he's going across a bridge, he would meet a, a Roman Catholic uh, priest, and he would would take his backpack and throw his idols. Uh, into the into the lake, uh, so Pharrell was very fiery, whereas Calvin was more reserved, uh, more scholarly, uh, more think of a think of a, a research uh, oriented man. But nonetheless, Pharrell uh, begged Calvin to come to Geneva to be the pastor. Calvin resisted. Uh, Calvin stated uh, that he would much rather continue his rather comfortable life in academics of writing. Uh, and Pharrell said he would call down the curses of heaven <laughs> if Calvin didn't come. Uh, so Calvin arrived and settled in Geneva in 1536, and Geneva was one of the few free city-states in the world. Uh, there were a handful of small Swiss city-states, along with Venice and Florence, and outside of those places there was virtually no place uh, where there was democracy. Interestingly, humanists today tell us how how wonderful uh, the, the, the shadow was of Plato and Aristotle and of, of the Greek um, political system. That simply didn't last. Uh, when Calvin was uh, 11 years old, when he was Caden's age, virtually everywhere in the world uh, were hierarchical monarchies 
ruled by kings, uh, and uh, there was very little input for citizens, very little recourses. One of the glories of the Protestant Reformation is they brought much more input to citizens and also brought uh, a broader form of education, an open education up. A little-known story of Calvin is um, he, he began actually public education in Geneva and uh, thought that uh, in order for citizens to operate as they should and to be Christians, they needed to be able to read. So literacy grew under, under Calvinistic countries and regimes. Business grew, as you've, noticed, as you've noted earlier. Uh, and, and all kinds of developments began to explode almost simultaneously, and they spread westward wherever Calvinist disciples went and eventually came to the New World. Yeah, I was listening uh, just the other day to uh, um, uh, kind of a little discussion with Peter Hammond, and he was, he was making the case that um, the, 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 the difference with Swiss, you know, the Swiss area being, while well, he listed it as the oldest republic at 800 or so years, it was kind of a different world, and, and he, I think he used the term liberal, but not in a political sense, right. but in a very liberating sense. But I kind of wanted to get back to one thing that, I, that, I, that, was, that was missed in, in something you were talking about, and I, I've never really understood it. And it has to do with the fact that, as I read, a, a friend of, of Calvin's gives a speech at the university, and then something bad happens, and they have to flee um, sure. Nicholas Kopp. What exactly was that story? Well, Nicholas Kopp was actually the rector of the University of Paris. The rector would be the, the rough equivalent of the, the president of, of one of the leading universities in the world. Nicholas Kopp and a number of other Parisian reformers, uh, you would probably call them Lutherans at, the, at that time, because remember, prior to Calvin... There were just a handful of other reformers, Luther being the main one. <clears throat> but nonetheless, Nic- Nicholas Kopp and others began to read the writings of Luther and others, uh, realized the, the errors in medieval Catholicism, saw the corruption, uh, and uh, said that people really needed to be liberated from that. And so Nicholas Kopp gave his address on the assumption uh, of his position and was quickly arrested. Some people believe that Calvin helped write that because there were some notations found in uh, some of those papers. Whether or not that's that's true or not, we, we can't be sure. But that was the cause that led to Calvin fleeing Paris and becoming a refugee for a while. Okay, then then what happens about a year or so later? Um, there's something called the Affair of the Placards and, 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 and its impact on the fr- persecution of the French Protestants. I'm trying to, you know, again, put these things into order to understand why he's gone and 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 where he ends up and some of the stuff that takes place in Sure, Geneva. this is af- after Calvin leaves. Calvin fled Paris for his life. Uh, a few other um, proto-reformers remained in, in Paris, and the Placards Affair uh, was, was an, a chance of publicizing the faith and making their stand, and that stirred up the Roman Catholic authorities. Years later, that'll be tied into uh, a, a horrendous, uh, massacre, genocide, really, in 1572, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Oh, okay, uh, so I, and I'm familiar time, with that. Yeah, and that that was really, and I, really, I do describe it as, as an act of genocide. It was purely because of religious uh, beliefs, and the Roman Catholic uh, king and hierarchy virtually eradicated the Protestants from France. All right, we're gonna go, we're, we got about two or three minutes left in this segment, and I kind of want to get um, this picture of what Geneva is like um, because we spent so much time yesterday and even earlier um, the, the the last few days talking about the persecution. We talked about uh, Jan Hus, 
um, and his goose being cooked. Uh, we talked about uh, Wycliffe and, and others under persecution. Is it different in Geneva um, being in a more republic, less uh, monarchical um, government? Is it a is it a safer place? Does the church not have doesn't wield as much of the sword as it would say somewhere else? Is it still under the 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 auspice of the Holy Roman Emperor? Give us an idea of what Geneva itself is like at that time. Yeah, Geneva's a great story. In fact, I've got a big thick book that cost way too much, uh, but find one in the library called The Genevan Reformation and the American Founding that documents a lot of this. Um, but in Geneva, one of the first cases of a citizenry election uh, in May of 1536, the citizens gathered together, and because uh, Geneva was, it's right on the edge of France because it's so far from Rome, uh, that's probably one of the reasons why most of the Swiss republics were a little bit more independent. Uh, and those citizens gathered, and uh, as the sun set the previous evening, the town was Roman Catholic, the church was Roman Catholic, they met outside at the square, they voted, and they voted themselves Protestant evangelicals. And immediately... Uh, the city uh, became a, a Protestant haven. Of course, various Catholic rulers, mainly the Prince of Savoy from France, tried to retake those lands. So there was an ongoing uh, decade or so of battles, skirmishes. It actually lasted uh, much longer than that, uh, intermittently. And there was a continual attempt for about 75 years, actually, to retake Geneva for the Catholics. And because there's the Geneva's kind of in a weird situation geographically with. France and, and other countries right. kind of vying for its its place. Right, right. but they had, a, they had this this wonderful election. It's a great. Uh, there was no bloodshed. The, the people voted. Uh, then they elected uh, the equivalent of aldermen or city council members, and uh, began to be a small free republic. Just a few years earlier, they patterned themselves on their neighboring city state to the north, Bern, uh, and Zurich uh, was also a free republic. So there were several, Baron Zurich, Basel, and Geneva, uh, voted themselves free Protestant republics. And uh, th- those were, were rather radical uh, and began the whole new, new trend Uh, of giving citizens much more input in their affairs. All right, great. We are going to go to a break right now. When we come back, we're going to start dealing more with the theological impact and political impact of Calvin in Geneva, discuss more about um, this, what becomes later known as the five points of Calvinism. And then, of course, the most often asked question that I've gotten so far on either Facebook or Twitter is, what do we say about Servetus? You knew that was coming right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. This is Dave Lohman. My uh, special guest is Dr. David Hall. Um, now, uh, sir, when we left off, and the, the last thing we, we were kind of talking about, Calvin, what drove him to Geneva. But I've got some bad news. I just got an email from Gary DeMar that says I'm supposed to give you a really hard time. <laughs> so, <laughs> good, good. Tell him I'll get him back Sunday morning. <laughs> Excellent. So when we look at the, the life of Calvin, I want to kind of spend a little bit going over some misconceptions about Calvin, which all kind of take place in Geneva. And the first off is that people think that the Institutes of the Christian Religion, this now big monstrous volume, which was actually not one at first, is a systematic theology, when really it kind of is— it's laid out really uniquely, isn't it? I mean, compared to any other similar writings, it's, it's very different in the way that it's laid out. Yeah, the, the present volume is uh, very Trinitarian. The original volume, though, was, was simply 
based on common material that Christians understood. Calvin had a chapter on, or a, or a small section on the Apostles' Creed, a section on prayer, <clears throat> a section on, on the church and, and powers. <clears throat> so most theology books at the time would take those common elements of the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and prayer, and each theologian would just sort of take his term expounding on those. So there was nothing terribly original uh, in the early editions, uh, except for Calvin's animosity toward the Roman Catholic Church. Um, <clears throat> so it grew, and, and it's a very biblical work. Uh, anyone who can pick it up can see the, the massive amount of scriptural allusions to it. And uh, it's also important for people to remember that that was but one genre that Calvin used. Calvin wrote far more pages in his commentary, and there are tens of thousands of pages of his sermons. He preached regularly, uh, so he talked to a normal, regular congregation, uh, and much more of his work is pitched toward an average audience of Christians than it is toward academic theologians. Yeah, I took a note yesterday when I was listening to Peter Hammond, and he kind of just was comparing Luther and Calvin, and, and it might not be perfectly accurate, but he said of, of Luther, he was a theologian who kind of ended up having to be a pastor, where Calvin was really a pastor who happened to be a theologian, um, because most of what he did was very pastoral in nature. A lot of his writings, when you read it, they come across as as homiletic, um, as very easy to follow, as kind of well uh, you know, one, two, three steps to, right. to think very so. simple, very simple and timeless. Uh, I still use Calvin's commentaries and Calvin's sermons uh, in, in my preaching today. That, that's actually a, a pretty good endorsement for something that's almost five centuries old. Most things become very dated. Their illustrations uh, become uh, useless. Uh, what Calvin did was he also uh, explored the text in the original languages. He frequently went back to the Greek or to the Hebrew, uh, and he's pretty pretty direct and pretty to the point. People think of Calvin as this sort of voluminous windbag. Uh, he actually stressed brevity, and believe it or not, if people would read his own works, they'd find that he's, he's fairly brief and to the point. Yeah, the word I think was used yesterday when I was listening was succinct, in that it was everything, right. he got to the point. There wasn't a whole lot of wasted space. Now, I want to deal with a couple of the, I wouldn't call them the controversies, but what I find as misconceptions about Calvin. People kind of have this idea that Calvin was the mayor of Geneva and that he had this city council that he controlled and that his goal was to create some sort of theocracy and rule the city. And, and when, and in fact, he wasn't even like a, 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 a citizen of the city until about his death, right? Right, yeah. Calvin, I like to tell people this, but Calvin did such a good job of ruling the city that they exiled him in less than two years. <laughs> So Calvin was there. There was a city council. That the city government was separate from the church government. And in his first I, residency— I, I don't mean to interrupt, but that's a big deal, isn't it, at the yeah, time to have a separate huge. city versus church government? It, it's huge. And uh, the, the Genevan authorities had to beg him to return. He was exiled to Strasbourg, and he spent three years there. He met a, a woman there who was a widow. He got married. His life was moving really well. I, it speaks. It just speaks volumes of his humility that he would even consider returning to a place that essentially uh, rode him out on the rails and uh, exiled him. And one of the conditions that he uh, stipulated for his return uh, was that he be allowed to draft the equivalent of an ecclesiastical constitution to really cement 
the freedom of the church and the separation of the, the church from the state. And then when he went back to Geneva, his second Genevan residence, which he stayed until his death in 1564, uh, he remained there. But there were still struggles. That by no means uh, did the city council always agree with council and uh, with Calvin. In fact, they did not agree with him on the, the frequency of, of the Lord's Supper, and Calvin actually submitted to that. Uh, that was not a matter of conscience to him. Uh, and there was there was an ebb and flow, give and take. Certain families were very powerful at that time. Uh, and over the 25 years of his return, uh, the city council did become uh, more consistent with what Calvin and the pastors were teaching. But not, and this is important, David, this is, a, this is critical to, to note, not because he legislated anything, not because of any force, but again because of the power of ideas, in this case specifically biblical ideas, as those rooted in the minds of people as the ethics of Scripture began to be the norms for daily living, then it's, it's not surprising that Geneva changed. Now, during his uh, exile in Strasbourg, um, someone uh, I, was, I was reading real quick, and, and I, I have no background information on it, but there is mention of him having this correspondence with the, the bishop—was uh, it Sadolet? Um, Cardinal Cardinal Satellite. Yeah, Cardinal Satellite. What what exactly was this dialogue that was going on? Well, it was a it was a pretty well known letter uh, to Jacob Satellite in, in which uh, Calvin directly began to dispute with Roman Catholic authorities over the structure of the church, what the church, the authority of the church, whether the priest really bore the authority that they claimed to, or, or whether things didn't go back to the Word of God. Oh, okay. All right, and that kind of helps. So, this d- does this kind of spark any uh, animosity uh, from Rome directed at, at? You don't seem to have Calvin in the same sort of fight with Rome publicly that you see taking place with Luther. Maybe yeah, Luther, why... there are two differences. One is Luther went to Rome. Uh, Luther went to Rome. Luther was summoned, and uh, there there were some some direct face to face interactions. Calvin did not have that. Remember, Calvin was not ordained as a priest. Luther was. Okay, so that helps. as a Roman Catholic priest, Luther was accountable to all of the succession of the various hierarchies to the, to the Senate of the Diocese, then all the way to Rome. Uh, Calvin was different in that respect. Uh, and, and secondly, Luther was uh, a little bit more in your face. He was a little bit more controversial. And uh, Calvin, again, was, was more reserved. That being said, however, Calvin actually pushed the Reformation considerably farther than Luther did uh, in many different sectors, and particularly in church government, which Luther commented on. In fact, Luther, Luther offered very little uh, on the, the topics of church government, or civil government for that matter. In fact, had it not been a Calvin, uh, I'm, I'm not sure the, the republics and, and the various democratic movements would have arisen based solely on Luther's writings. Yeah, and we're so gonna, they were different. They were different. Yeah, we'll get to it ne- next week in detail, but there's no way of escaping um, the foundations of this country um, related to the the Calvinists, um, whether it had been Knox or, or Calvin himself or, or some of the others, um, in the relation to how government operates. There's a, there's a whole lot of similarity there, and we're kind of uh, indebted to Calvin's work when it comes to our own government. Right, and, and he attracted, and this is another key thing about Geneva, Geneva, because it was a safe haven for refugees, atta- uh, attracted people from Italy, from England, uh, from France. Again, when, the, when the, the French Catholics are killing the, the Huguenots, uh, they have to have a place to flee, so they flee to Geneva. Geneva's population doubled in about a 12-year period, 
and Calvin actually was both forced and helpful in developing a safety net of care for the poor. Uh, and that's one of the segments of several of the things I've written on is, is his care for the poor. You, you, he's caricatured as such an ugly, horrible, mean, spirited man, but people forget that Calvin actually started an orphanage home, and when he died, he left that in his will. Um, so there was a real compassion at heart uh, throughout Calvinism. Uh, but because they attracted these various uh, thinkers and leaders to Geneva, they would come to Geneva almost as sort of an international think tank retreat center kind of thing. They would be inculcated with Calvin's principles, not only in theology, but in church government, in education, in secular government. And then people like John Knox and others, John Ponet, who died, died a young life, would return uh, and be strong ambassadors for the Reformed faith in its political and social outworkings as well. Is it safe or fair to to kind of say that Calvin and a handful of others, the names you just mentioned, were almost kind of this the second wave of the Reformation that kind of grabbed what the Tyndales and, and Luthers or whatever may have run with it a little more or take, took it to the next level of it being, oh, I hate to say, it, but more of a, a less fearful of breaking away from the Catholic Church versus the other ones who still tried to wanted to maintain being part of it. And that, but then you do kind of see, don't you kind of see a break where they're like, yeah. no, we don't even want to be a part of this anymore. You can't, you, you know, can't split, split dead wood as, as Warfield yeah, we've, said. We've, I've described Geneva as a Protestant turbine. Uh, these various streams would come in and then they would be energized and sent out with more force. Uh, and there, and there was, I mean, we really do owe Geneva uh, a great debt. Uh, it's possible also to, um, gloss over their flaws. They certainly had flaws, uh, but it was, it was in that period of safety and relative tranquility uh, that these thinkers were able to get these ideas. And yeah, they came out, and, and again, the time is moving very quickly. Uh, Luther, for example, uh, never expressed any interest in separating uh, from Roman uh, Catholicism, and he was protected by a local ruler, and, and as a result, he simply didn't have to deal with some of the issues that the Protestants did in, in France and in Geneva. So in the providence of God, we're, we're thankful uh, that Calvin uh, could host the Knoxes, <clears throat> the Ponets, and, and many others, strengthen them, send them back, and, and those became the great-great-grandparents of our Puritan forefathers uh, who sailed to the West. And then in the new, in the new world, there were no traditions, there were there were there were no monarchies. Of course, England was was uh, the monarch, King George III, for example, at the Revolutionary War. Uh, but in the New World, you were so far you're separated by a pretty large body of water. Yeah, uh, they didn't the, quite have that that ability to reach that right. Far the, the republicanism and the and the the free the the freer expressions in society could develop without the hindrance that they had on the continent. All right. Well, that's perfect. That's a great place for us to kind of finish this segment, and we're going to go to a break when we come back. As I mentioned before, the number one question, and it's not even close, how do we answer the, the issue of the controversy surrounding uh, the, the execution of Servetus and John Calvin's involvement or lack of involvement, exactly what took place there? We'll find out from our guest, Dr. David Hall, right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. This is Dave Lohman. My guest is Dr. David Hall, and we have been talking about John Calvin. So, Dr. Hall, why did Calvin kill Servetus? That's the question well, that's always great, how it's asked, and it's always asked that way as well. Great question, like. and, and that's, uh, that, <laughs> that's easy to exonerate him. He didn't. Um, <laughs> I, I try to tell people a couple things. First, to set the, the context, 
uh, as a Calvinist uh, and as a believer in Scripture today, our, our fathers, our grandfathers, believed some things, did some things, and uh, we need not follow them in every particular of their faith still to respect them. Uh, and also our fathers and grandfathers in the faith did some things we wouldn't do today. So uh, I believe that the civil government has its charter given in Romans 13. Uh, and as part of that, one of the things the civil government is not to do is to intrude in conscience. So I'm, I'm certainly not one, and I don't, in fact, I don't know any modern Calvinists uh, who, are, who are fans uh, of, of stoning a heretic. Uh, there may be some, but I simply uh, don't know those. So we ought to keep that in context. But there are three things I say on, this, on the specific charge. Did Calvin... Uh, kill surveyors. First of all, you have to relatively compare the number of trials for heretics in Geneva with that of Roman Catholic territories of the day. And there's no comparison. Roman Catholics were continuing uh, not only to arrest, try, to persecute, but to kill Protestants and others. Uh, and the amount of freedom in Geneva uh, was extraordinary uh, in Calvin's time. And that was a quick immediate. Uh, think of this as a dose of uh, penicillin hitting a strep virus. It was a quick, immediate change, uh, and the persecution of heretics was nowhere near as large in any of the Protestant republics as in the Roman Catholic times. Secondly, uh, Calvin actually advised against the death penalty for Servetus. Servetus was a, was a charismatic figure, a very intelligent medical doctor by training, and his charges brought against him by the Genevan City Council, who carried out the sentences, uh, were that essentially he was disturbing the peace by advocating against the Trinity uh, and against infant baptism. And so for those and other reasons, the City Council brought charges against Servetus, uh, and could have simply exiled him from the city of Geneva. That's what Calvin advised. So Calvin not only never lit the match, never chopped off the beard or the head of Servetus, didn't have any physical part uh, of his sentence, but furthermore, Calvin advised his city council against that kind of physical punishment. Thirdly and finally, he was he was rather persistent, and he was so strong in his advice to the city council that this was an erroneous act of government that he uh, did get them to compromise a little bit and say, would you please at least consult with the other city-states, some of which I've mentioned, Bern, Zurich, Basel, and others, and would you ask them at least uh, approach this as a collegial matter and get their input instead of acting unilaterally? Uh, Nonetheless, the Genevan fathers, the city council, the secular authorities, thought Servetus was so dangerous that he was disturbing the peace so much uh, that they inflicted, inflicted the capital punishment on him. Well, now, I, I, today, I, yeah, if you go, go to Geneva, you go to Geneva today, uh, people don't feel sorry for Servetus. To the contrary, Servetus is a hero in modern Geneva, and Calvin uh, is viewed as, as, a, as a tyrant. Uh, but if you go back and, and read and, and put things in their historical context, read what Calvin himself did, read what he advised, read what he didn't advise, um, you, you'll see a, a much milder figure uh, who, A, was not responsible for the death of Servetus, and B, who advised against that punishment. Yeah, we are down to our last two minutes, unfortunately, because I was really hoping to, to talk a little bit more uh, at his uh, at his death, he was actually, uh, from what I understand, carried uh, to church for the last time and received the Lord's Supper. 
from Theodore Beza. And um, I, I, maybe next week when I talk to one of the gentlemen I'm talking to next week, we can talk more about his impact on, on Beza and what, you know, what kind of uh, debt we also owe to him um, and, and great works that came from that. But again, we just simply ran out of time. There's too much to talk about. And like I said, we can only scratch the surface. Uh, the beginning of, of, this, uh, uh, of our show, we talked about different places that you can go to grab these books. I recommend that you do it. I want to thank you. Uh, Dr. Hall, for joining me today for the show. I hope the chance to uh, bring you back again. Um, if, if Lord willing, we can have a similar discussion and dig deeper into the life of Calvin. Uh, but again, thank you for I'd joining us. I'd love to come back and talk to Bezos sometime, but I'll never come back to your show again unless Caden asks me a question. <laughs> oh, that's not fair. But is. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today on Always I'll Ready. Um, next week is all about the impact of what we've talked about this week, church history and the Reformation. What has that done to our church, and what has it done to politics, and everything else will be discussed next week with Michael Horton, Stephen Lawson, John Barber, and Joel Beek, right here on Always Ready.